0: So now we come to the 21st and last installment in our discussion of the subject of Christ being made a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. Last Lord's Day, we described how Christ was made a curse for us to redeem us so that we might be justified, rescued from sin and death and judgment, and received the Holy Ghost to knit us unto God our Father in love. Perhaps the most precious text describe that spirit of adoption. And the intense protestations of God's love to us in Jesus Christ. Which the Holy Ghost communicates to us. Because we are sons of God. He has sent to us the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry. Abba Father. But not only so, the Holy Ghost testifies to our spirits that we are God's sons and heirs according to the promise with Jesus. We no longer shrink from God for fear of his wrath, but rather draw near unto him in his love for us. This is a miraculous thing that God should send us the Holy Ghost to knit us together with him, to cement us as his dear sons, by adoption. In Galatians 4, Paul reiterates this glorious truth and ties it to Christ being made under the law and redeeming us by being made a curse for us so that we might receive the adoption of sons of God. Note that we were not worthy to be made sons of God, but because of Christ being made a curse for us and redeeming us, God has accepted us in Christ and adopted us as his sons. Our receiving the Holy Ghost of adoption is only because we are sons. The Spirit cries within us, Abba, Father. Notice that we both cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit, and the Spirit himself cries, Abba, Father, in us. Thus the Holy Ghost in us articulates for us and on our behalf, to the Father, what we ourselves often forget to cry, "I Father." The Holy Ghost perfects in us that filial language of love and sonship that we ought to speak ourselves. He carries us along toward the love for the Father, as our Father, thereby knitting us together with the Father in love and obedience. Our hearts are not perfectly conformed to the will of God, but the Holy Ghost makes up for that by praying on our behalf to God. This intercession by the Spirit presents to the Father what we ought to say and to pray for. So when we are inarticulate or apathetic or even cold to the Father, the Holy Ghost is speaking on our behalf and in our stead. He always prays according to God's will because he is the Spirit of God who knows perfectly well the will of the Father. The desire of the Father that we should receive him as our Father is touchingly shown by the lengths to which he goes to join ourselves unto him by the Spirit indwelling. We cannot comprehend the full love of the Father for us now. But Christ's Spirit speaks for us and makes up our deficiencies in protestations of love for the Father until we are made like Christ one day when we see Him as He is. Scriptures tell us that the indwelling of the Holy Ghost is the down payment, the earnest, the deposit to us, guaranteeing the final redemption of our bodies. Not only are we redeemed from sin and hell and death now by the blood of Christ, but we have the sure promise that one day He will raise us up unto eternal life in perfection and glory with Him. It is by the Holy Ghost that we know that great love for us. He communicates its infinite depth and reach and size that we may know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. This knitting together of God and his people by the Holy Ghost is miraculous. Nothing can compare to it in our earthly lives. None of us can do such a thing to cement our earthly loves with others. But God is so determined that we should love him and trust him and know his love for us. that He gives us his spirit to dwell in us, to work, to speak and to love us up close and personally inside of us, and to generate a love in our hearts unto God as our Father. Oh, that we would be completely captured by the love of God for us, especially as we partake of Christ's celebration around the Lord's table each Sunday. Oh, that we might live forever in that love and glory, which we have only barely begun to grasp and understand. And rejoice over. And so, our text as always has been Galatians 3 at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ urges His people to rest and rely upon His promised kingdom that is to come one day. Here is a prospect of that which shall be, but which we have not already seen with our own eyes. A great kingdom of God in which Christ rules and where we are in everlasting glory and happiness when all things are set right by the ruler, by our Lord Jesus. We're not to worry about the riches of this world. We're to lay hold upon the promised everlasting life and the glory that shall be as Christ has promised us. We read this morning Luke chapter 12 at verse 29 where Jesus exhorts his disciples, Seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, nor moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I remember once hearing a sermon by J.P. Macbeth in which he talked about the moth, where no moth corrupteth. And he made this image of moths they get into the clothing and they get into the a robe and they get into the closet and they eat away at the clothing until you take it out and it's got all these holes in it and he said something funny about they don't even have very big teeth and yet the moths get into everything and ruin it and nowadays of course we have all kinds of Poisons and whatnot. My grandmother used to put mothballs in the closets. When you went to her house, everything smelled like mothballs because she sort of overdid it, but I think she probably managed to beat back the moths. There's a treasure which the Lord has promised us, and it's a treasure that the moths can't eat up, and it's also a treasure that the thieves can't cart off, can they? And it's also a treasure, as Peter says, that does not fade away or run out. Everybody wants a treasure, everybody wants an inheritance, but then they get it and they blow right through it before they know it. And they're back down to the Velveeta and the oatmeal, as they put it, before they can even realize what they've done. But you see, the treasure which the Lord has promised His people never runs out. And it never is taken away and it will be with us for all eternity. But notice he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now these disciples, they were all about the kingdom, weren't they? But they had too restrictive a notion of what the kingdom was. Jesus said that your Father, it is His good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. The good pleasure of the Father towards His people. What a glorious thought that is, that he delights to give his people good things. And what could be better than the kingdom of Christ? Therefore, we ought to lay up a treasure in heaven. That is, in the situation in which the kingdom will be entered into, like we are sending forward an investment, as it were, but rather that we should so focus upon the kingdom that is to come, and the promise of everlasting life that Christ has given us, that we feel it is something that is so sure it should be invested in. You know, if somebody told you that you could make lots of money investing in this or that stock, and it was something you had never heard of, and it was very speculative, why, then you might be reluctant. You haven't seen it. It hadn't yielded any dividends yet. I remember once a friend of ours, his wife, invested in cell phone spectrum allocations. And then when she cashed them in, when the cell phone business took off, she made millions of dollars. There was something that you couldn't even see. And yet she bought into it early and reaped great rewards. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here is acts of kindness and charity and love for other people our investments, you see, in the kingdom that is to come. And you see, this is the opposite of grasping a hold of these things for ourselves, that we are so worried and preoccupied with our own little temporary fortunes and desires that we don't see the grandness of what has been promised to us when the kingdom comes. And when we're brought into it in the fullness, when the little flock is given the kingdom by the good pleasure of the Father These are all things that are the consequence of Christ being made a curse for us. He has turned our course away from hell and wrath and destruction towards a mighty, glorious kingdom which God desires to give to His people. There are so many texts we could draw upon to express the promises that are to come, so we will draw upon only. A few of them. We are, of course, clothed in righteousness. It is not a righteousness that is familiar to us. It is not a righteousness that's a result of our own good deeds. Look at Isaiah 61 at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. You remember, this is exactly what Galatians 3, what Paul said, was the promise that flows from Christ being made a curse for us. What? That we should receive the blessing of Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? The blessing of Abraham is righteousness imputed by faith. A righteousness which is laid on us, clothed upon us, if you will, by faith. This is the great promise of how the Lord will execute this promise in Isaiah 61. There is a robe of righteousness. It's Christ's manufacture, isn't it? There are garments of salvation. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus placed upon us. And these all are made available to us by faith because He was made a curse for us. So here is a great promise of God's righteousness laid upon us, imputed to us. And then notice that it goes further than that. It springs forth. He will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. There is a promise that God makes that one day all the world will see great righteousness. He'll see the Lord's righteousness displayed in His Loved ones, this is a great promise that is made that is to be looked forward to. But then notice, we are beloved of God, and He will proclaim it to the whole world one day. We see this in Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 at verse 3. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shalt thy land be any more termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, and as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Here is a promise that those who are lost in sin those who were rebellious against God, those who were subject to the wrath of God and judgment of God, who have been entrusted to Christ as His people, as His sheep, as His loved ones to be rescued and raised up unto everlasting life. God describes this as if He has made His people a crown upon His head, as if He has made His people... A royal diadem in the hand of God. Think about that, that he takes poor lost sinners in rebellion and enslaved to sin and with nothing beautiful in us to commend us to God and he converts us into things of beauty and royalty which he then displays as his trophies of grace." And we're no longer termed forsaken. Our land is no longer desolate, but rather we are beloved. We're called Hephzibah. The Lord delights in us. The Lord takes us unto Christ as a bride, doesn't He? And you remember Paul in Ephesians 5 expands upon this theme, you see, that God rejoices over His people... Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might present it unto Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. He has taken poor lost men and converted them into His church and rejoices over His church like a bridegroom rejoiceth over his bride. This is already, you see, come, and yet there is to be fulfilled in it That great marriage feast that we've been promised one day we shall partake of. We who once were aliens, children of wrath, now perfectly beloved of God. Because the Lord Jesus was made a curse for us to redeem us. Remember Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Here's the means by which he beautifies his people to make us glorious in his sight, to rescue us, to cleanse us, to be Christ's spotless bride, Christ promised he will rejoice over his church. But then God who ought to condemn us, God who ought to condemn us for our sin rather declares that we are justified for Jesus' sake and then rejoices over us with singing. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. I will also leave in the midst of thee, that's speaking of lost Israel, an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee. Joy over thee with singing. There will be no sin to be found in the Lord's people. It has been taken away in Christ. But one day, you see, we will be made perfect when we're conformed to His image. There will be complete peace, the promise given by this prophet. And therefore we should rejoice. Our judgments have been taken away by the Lord Jesus, the King in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil. What a glorious promise that is. Old Brother Gill has a lot to say about everything. And he wrote a commentary on every verse of the Bible. It's nine volumes in small print. And he did it without a word processor or even a fountain pen. He used a quill. But he had this to say, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Every word carries in it something very encouraging to the church and people of God and is an antidote against those fears and faintings that they are subject to. Christ is in the midst of them, near at hand to support and supply them, to assist and strengthen them, to protect and defend them. He is here by His gracious presence, peculiar to His church and people, and which gives us unspeakable joy, and is a sufficient security from all fears and dismayings, And he who is in the midst of them is the Lord, Jehovah, the being of beings, eternal, immutable, and all-sufficient, possessed of all divine perfections, and their God, God in their nature, Emmanuel, God with us, and who is mighty, the Almighty God, the mighty mediator, who has all power in heaven and earth. And as man, the man of God's right hand, made up strong for himself, And so able to save his people to the uttermost, to deliver them out of the hands of every enemy, to raise up his interest whenever so low, and to maintain and support it, to help and assist his people in every duty and service that he calls them to. And then it says he will save. He is as willing to save as he is able to save. He readily undertook in counsel and covenant to save his chosen ones. He came in the fullness of time to seek and to save that which was lost. He has wrought out salvation for us and sees that it is applied unto us and will come again to put us into the full possession of it. He saves us freely, fully, and everlastingly. He saves us from sin, Satan, the law, hell, and wrath, and every spiritual enemy. Nor has the church of Christ anything to fear from any temporal enemy. And then he says of this, he will rejoice over thee with joy, with exceeding joy, not to be conceived of or expressed. As a bridegroom rejoiceth over his bride, this will be the time of the open marriage of the Lamb with the church. And there will be strong expressions of joy on this occasion. Christ will rejoice over them to do them good. And there will be such singular instances of his goodness to them, as will abundantly show the joy that he will have in them. He will rest in his love. That is to continue in his love without variation or change. Nothing shall separate from it. It shall always remain the same. He will take up his contentment and satisfaction in his love. He will solace himself with it. It will be a pleasing thing to him to love his people and to show it to them. He will take the utmost complacency and delight in expressing his love by words and deeds unto us. And not upbraid us with our sins, nor reprove, correct, and chastise us in His hot displeasure, nor say one word in a way of vindictive wrath, and He will make all others silent. Every enemy, or whatever is contrary to them, such is His great love to us. He will forgive us our iniquities, cover our sins, and in love to us cast them behind His back. The phrase expresses the greatness of Christ's love to his people, the strength, fullness, and continuance of it. The words seem to be wanted, therefore more are added. He will joy over them with singing. There is an overabundance of joy in Christ's heart toward his people, and so a redundancy in his expression of it. He rejoices with joy and joys with singing which shows how delighted he is with his people as they are his chosen redeemed and called ones as they have his own righteousness upon them and his own grace in them they are his hephzibah in whom he delights his beulah to whom he is married and it is his love of complacency and delight which is the source of all the grace and glory that he bestows upon us now, we read this morning that beautiful text, Isaiah the 35th chapter. It talks about a wilderness in a solitary way that rises up with rejoicing because the Lord has been good to His people. And He has restored all the land and He has taken away all the evil and all the danger. And He's suppressed all the violence and He's banished all the wicked. And then we get down to verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall be not found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here is the promise of the condition of the kingdom of God that we have been promised by the Father that He will give, it is His good pleasure to give unto His little flock. And then in Revelation 21, of course, we have that glorious description of the conditions that will be our lot when the new Jerusalem is brought to our presence John the Apostle said this at first 1 of Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men These words are true. Do you see how this describes the New Jerusalem where everything will be made right for God's people? There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. This is the promise that Christ makes to His people when He tells them, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. Here is a glorious description of what that kingdom would be. And then a few verses later in Revelation 22, we read these final words. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river were there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of Of the nations. And then look at this. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever. And ever. There shall be no more curse, you see, when the kingdom comes, when we're ushered into it. No more curse. You know, Christ has redeemed us, has he not, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And ultimately, you see, the Lord Jesus unwinds all the sorrow and pain and destruction. And death and misery that came from the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden all those millennia ago. He unwinds all that. He restores all things. He makes all things new. As Peter put it, we seek a kingdom, a world in which dwelleth righteousness. And this is going to be the hallmark of the Lord's kingdom that he has promised to us. There will be no more curse. I won't read what Gil said, but he goes on and on. He talks about the curse that was upon the land in Eden because of sin. He talks about the curse of the law which Christ has taken away from us, redeemed us from by being made a curse for us. Can you imagine the stark reality of the fact that this is a place and a time in which there is no curse and it is ruled over by the lamb who was made a curse at one time at Calvary in order to redeem all of his people from the curse so that one day you see not only the curse of the law but all judgment and wrath and trouble that our sin got us into with the holy god is rolled away and even the curse that was upon the ground is taken away. And there is in the new kingdom, in the new Jerusalem, no curse at all. No more curse. We shall see His face. It promises here. We shall reign forever and ever with Christ. It says here. And in this, what the Lord Jesus promised, didn't He? He said, Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. You see, it's not just a kingdom that we are brought into It's a kingdom that we are brought into and elevated to reign with Christ, to reign with the Lord Jesus. We're like the younger princes. We're the younger princes of the elder brother who is the prince of all the kingdom. And he has granted to his people the right one day to reign with him forever and forever. You see, when Jesus said that it was the Father's good will to give us the kingdom, he actually meant what he said. We listen to those words and we, we read those words and we gloss over the portent of them, the import of them. What does it mean for God to give us the kingdom? Well here in the last chapter of the Bible, the apostle John records the revelation. It means We'll be in a place where there's no more curse, and we shall reign with Christ in this kingdom forever and ever. It reminded me of a verse of poetry that was written by Anne Ruth Cousin, taken from the dying words of Samuel Rutherford. We sing the song, and we know it as Emmanuel's Land. Other people call it the Sands of Time are sinking but there are a lot of other verses that she wrote in that poem that are not used in our hymn book. But here's one that came to my mind thinking about this kingdom, thinking about the reign of Christ, thinking about the Lord's people being brought into this kingdom and this rule. She said this, The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey Though seven deaths lay between, the Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. This is the final glorious end of Christ being made a curse for us to obliterate completely the curse of sin, judgment, and the law for his people, that we might be elevated to the heights of splendor with Christ in his kingdom, that with him and under him we might reign forever and ever. You remember that hymn that we learned many years ago that James Deck wrote? I like the verse that says, The gates of heaven are opened wide. At his name all the angels bow. The Son of Man who was crucified is the King of glory now. We love to look up and behold Him there, the Lamb for His chosen slain. And soon shall the saints all His glory share with their head and their Lord shall reign. This is the end of Christ being made a curse for us. That we should be saved Rescued, justified, redeemed, sanctified by the Holy Ghost, made adopted sons of the King of all glory, and finally one day brought into His perfect kingdom and reigned with Christ forever and ever. And what we celebrate around this table is the means by which Christ accomplishes all these things the means by which he accomplished it. He went to the cross and was made a sacrifice and carried away our sins in his own body on the tree that we might be justified, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed from all unrighteousness. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took that bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You found in Your dear Son a Lamb who was suitable to be sacrificed one time for all to take away the sin of your people, to take away the sin of all who call upon you. Beg for mercy, Lord, as undeserving sinners. And yet you took the one who was perfect in all his ways and he became flesh for us that he might have a body in which you might judge our crimes. And he shed his precious blood on Calvary's tree to make atonement for us. For the remission of our sins, he said to his disciples. And we thank you that he didn't pay any attention at all to what their notions were of what he ought to do and say. But he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to be that sacrifice so that he might redeem all of his people, so that he might take away the curse of the law from us, from all of our backs, so that we might be raised up in glory and honor not for anything we did, but because of what Christ did for us. We thank You for that blood by which He executes the new covenant, so that You might indeed not remember against us our sins anymore. And we thank You that one day You will put us in that glorious place where sorrow and sighing have fled away, where there's no more curse, where there's no more death, and no more sorrow or pain. But in the new Jerusalem, in the kingdom, that will be where we will see our Lord Jesus face to face, where His name will be written in our forehead, and where we shall reign with Him forever and ever. We thank You for this feast that He left us and for what it symbolizes and for the promise that it extends to us throughout all eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that Christ took the cup and He blessed it And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and sing number 191 with Jesus in our midst. Call your attention to the last verse. Soon shall the night be gone. And we with Jesus reign. The marriage supper of the Lamb shall banish all our pain. Number 191.